Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Climate scientist Dr. Michael Mann joins the science revolution for the full episode this week. He's the creator of the hockey stick graphic that Al Gore made famous to describe global warming. His latest book is The New Climate War. And he drops by to answer the question, have humans passed the point of no return in the climate crisis? And is there hope? He also explains why storms are getting worse because of climate change. Plus, what will it mean to return to the Paris Agreement and how will things change with scientists back in charge in the Biden administration? Stay tuned. On the line with us for most of this hour is our old buddy, Dr. Michael Mann. He is the Distinguished Professor of Meteorology, the Director of the Earth System Science Center at Penn State University, a member of the National Academy of Sciences. The author has several books, including his latest out in January. It's available now for pre-sale wherever you find fine books. It's titled The New Climate War. His previous book, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy. His website, michaelmann.net, and you can tweet him at Michael E. Mann. Dr. Mann, it is always an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to kind of walk through at least the table of contents of your book over the course of this hour before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of what's going on here. What is front and center on your dashboard? What are the things that you as a climate scientist, as one of the world's leading climate scientists, you know, I noticed your new book, Greta Thunberg and Al Gore and a whole bunch of really <laughs> great people have endorsed it. What are you looking at that has you the most alarmed and the most hopeful? Thanks, Tom. Well, it's always good to be with you, my friend. And, you know, I am actually quite hopeful in general right now. There are reasons for cautious optimism, gotten rid of the single greatest threat to climate action in the world, which was Donald Trump. And so now we can see on the horizon the potential for meaningful action. But, you know, you ask, uh, what are the things that worry me? Well, what worries me is that we have to reduce our carbon emissions by a factor of two within the next decade if we're going to keep warming below truly catastrophic levels. And we're not yet on track to do that, even with the lockdown and social distancing policies of COVID-19 this year, probably only only going to see a reduction in carbon emissions by four or five percent or so. And we need to do more than that, at least seven and a half percent a year for each of the next 10 years if we're going to stay on track. So both hopeful cautious optimism that we can now see a path forward that the U.S. will now be in a position to re-engage with our uh, global partners to really tackle this problem, but concern about the monumental nature of the task that we face. Correct my memory if I'm wrong on this, and I may well be, but my recollection is that the United States, with about 4% of the world's population, contributes between 20 and 25% of the world's pollution, that our principal source of carbon pollution is our transportation system. Number two is housing and buildings, you know, commercial buildings. And number three is agriculture. 
If I have that right, what do we do in each of those areas and how do we move forward? I mean, in transportation, for example, I think the UK just announced over the weekend that starting 2030, they're going to ban the sale of internal combustion engines. Norway did that, what, last year or the year before? Other countries are doing that around the world. Electric cars are growing like crazy. We're seeing more and more wind and solar power providing the electricity for them. So where do we go? What does it look like? Yeah. So, again, a little bit of good news there. Um, That's something that the Biden administration can act on immediately. Even without congressional approval, we can make sure that the EPA, for example, tightens those fuel efficiency standards, which have become lax under the Trump administration. So we need to decarbonize transportation. You're right. That's one of the major sectors. They're actually really four major contributors we think of these days, transportation, power generation, of course, electricity mm-hmm. generation, as well as, you know, agricultural policies, land use policies, and buildings, both the construction of buildings and their power usage generates a large amount of carbon emissions. So, you know, there's no one silver bullet, you know, all of the sectors that make up society contribute to our carbon emissions. And so we really need a multi-pronged effort to really tackle carbon emissions in every sector of society. The good news, again, is that what the Biden, incoming Biden administration is looking at is a a plan. You may have come across it. It was a plan basically written mostly by folks from the Obama administration who didn't have a chance to complete the plan when Obama was in office. But basically, it's a strategy for using all of the agencies in the government and basically every lever that the chief executive has, which means not just transportation and energy policy, but agricultural policy, as you allude to, Federal Reserve. The Treasury can, for example, require companies and corporations to disclose climate risk and allow investors an opportunity to take that into account in their decision-making. So really, every single sector of the government, there are ways that we can use those sectors to advance an agenda of decarbonizing our civilization. And that's sort of what Biden is looking at. Uh, It may really be about executive actions, at least for the next two years, depending on what the Senate looks like after these two upcoming special elections. Yeah. There was a a fascinating article in uh, Nature last week about the discovery of a a 1.2 million year old, or maybe a little older than that even, hominid fossil. The headline was Evolution in Real Time, that apparently climate change had altered the South African landscape, and this particular hominid developed larger jaw and stronger muscles to chew the more fibrous plants that were able to survive the drought. And I I tweeted about this, and the response I got was, yes, humans can evolve. We don't have to worry about climate change. We'll simply evolve to to meet it. It's like, oh. So, uh, you know, along those same lines, there's this headline over on Common Dreams. You know, humans may have passed the point of no return in climate crisis, says study. This was published in the peer-reviewed British publication Scientific Journals, quote, the world is already past a point of no return for global warming, and now we need to extract enormous amounts of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Do you agree with that analysis? There are a couple different things that have come out over the last week, and there was this one study arguing that we've gone beyond the point of no return based on a, a pretty flawed climate modeling approach, and you know other scientists aren't taking it that seriously. And in fact, I believe they retracted the press release that they put out mm. for this article and scientific reports. 
But there was also an open letter in The Guardian that I was a co-signatory of, along with uh, George Monbio and a, a number of other individuals who have sort of been advancing this framing that we have to reduce carbon emissions, of course. We have to stop burning fossil fuels, but we should also be doing everything we can to take up that carbon, to draw down that carbon, ideally through natural means, massive reforestation, carbon-friendly agricultural policies. And again, here's where Biden administration can actually help, for example, provide incentives for farmers to use farming practices that bury carbon. There's a lot that we can do there. And that's going to be part of the solution. It's going to be part of the solution as far as domestic policy, climate policy is concerned here in the U.S., but the larger effort to confront the climate crisis. I was reading this morning that we are now providing more than nearly $700 billion a year in subsidies to the fossil fuel industry in the United States. And I don't think that number includes the hundreds of billions of dollars that we spend protecting shipping lanes for transporting oil from Saudi Arabia to the United States, from the United States, you know, refined oil out of the United States, things like that. So it's probably even you know, closer to a trillion dollars. That's a mind-boggling amount of money. If we were to redirect even 5 or 10% of that to subsidies for green power, much less 50 or 100% of that, what impact would that have? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it, that we're providing subsidies, we're subsidizing, incentivizing extraction of fossil fuels and energy generation that's doing damage to the planet rather than providing incentives for the energy solutions to this problem, renewable energy. It's a perversion of the incentive structure in our energy economy. And again, that's one thing that we can try to do now under the incoming Biden administration. I mean, ultimately, if we really want to tackle that problem, we would want congressional buy-in and we would want a, a Congress that is willing to advance legislative policies that put a price on carbon, that provide subsidies and incentives for renewable energy. There's a fair amount that the president can do through executive actions, but a comprehensive solution would require a Congress that's willing to work with the president. And if we don't get that come January, then that's something that Democrats need to run on over the next two years. A do-nothing Congress that refuses to act on climate. That would be, I think, a commanding political agenda to try to seize back control of the Senate by Democrats, then we would really be in a position to solve this problem in a comprehensive way. Yeah, there's no question that the first thing that we have to do is to cut explicit subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. And Joe Biden has committed to doing that during the campaign. He committed to doing that. We need to make sure that he follows through on that commitment, because that's the first thing we can do is to cut these subsidies, to stop investing in additional fossil fuel infrastructure. These are things that the executive branch can do that an incoming President Biden could do immediately. What's the old saying? Before you take the aspirin for your headache, stop banging your head against the wall. <laughs> that's right. I mean, so it reminds the, me of the Hippocratic Oath, a version of which is first do no wrong. Uh, subsidizing the fossil fuel industry is doing wrong. It's uh, literally throwing fuel on the fire, figuratively and almost uh, literally. Dr. Mann, if we could just bounce through some of the points in your new book, uh, The New Climate War. You start out in the book with a chapter titled The Architects of Misinformation and Misdirection. 
What is misinformation specifically in the context that you're using it here? And misdirection, how are they different? And who are these architects? The misinformation or disinformation is the purveying of climate change denial by fossil fuel interest groups, talking heads who have advocated for them, sort of the usual suspects, industry-funded climate change deniers who have engaged in an intentional effort over decades to basically poison the public discourse over really all matters, environmental sustainability, but in particular climate change, because tackling the climate crisis represents a threat to the very powerful vested interest, the fossil fuel industry, who have funded this campaign of misinformation, disinformation, misdirection, distractions, deflections away from the source of the problem, the burning of fossil fuels, efforts to deflect our attention away from the need to actually do something about fossil fuel burning, get away from our reliance on fossil fuels, deflecting the discussion towards other issues like individual behavioral change, which is another theme of the book and the main theme of another chapter. Yeah, which is, and let's drill down just a little bit into that, because this has historically been one of the ways that dirty industries, killer industries, avoid regulation. We saw this with the tobacco industry. Well, you know, yeah, everybody knows, you know, post-1960s, everybody knows tobacco causes cancer, so it's a matter of individual responsibility. Mike Pence writing an op-ed back in 2000 saying, nine out of ten people who smoke don't get cancer or something like Mm -hmm. that. As if one out of ten is good enough. Yeah. Guns don't kill people, people kill people. Exactly. Yeah. There you are. Yep. So how does this play out with regard to climate change? As the impacts of climate change have become obvious, so profound that it really isn't credible to deny them. And And I say that here as we've witnessed the latest Category 5 hurricane on record forming in the Atlantic with IOTA strengthened to a maximum sustained winds, 160 mile per hour, Category 5 monster and landfall in Central America in great harm, uh, loss of life. The impacts of climate change are playing out in real time. It isn't credible to deny them. So instead, the forces of inaction, what I call the inactivists, have sort of moved on from sort of hardcore climate change denial to softer denial. Oh, well, maybe it's happening and it's due to us, but, uh, you know, it's not that bad and we can adapt. Or the use of sort of other tactics in what I call the new climate war. We've talked about one of them, deflection, deflecting attention away from the need for systemic change and policy solutions to individual behavior. Oh, it's, you know, all about you as an individual. And that's the commonality, you know, in what we're seeing today, sort of the climate arena with the deflection campaigns of yore, with the tobacco industry, or as I said, the the gun lobby, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people, make it about individuals. And I tell the story in the book. I'm not the first one to tell this story, but it's an important one. Tom, you probably uh, remember that uh, public service announcement in the early 70s. I grew up the crying Indian ad, as it's called, the tearful Native American People cause pollution, people can clean it up, paraphrasing the tagline. But the public service announcement was aimed at convincing us that the solution to the bottle and can litter accumulating 
in the environment, polluting our streams and rivers and countryside. That was due to us, us not being responsible enough. Many of us from that generation remember that ad, and it had a profound impact on us. It sort of felt like it empowered us to be good stewards of the earth and clean up the bottle and can litter. And there was so much about it that, that seemed so good. And what's so tragic is that it was all a sham. It was a publicity effort by the beverage industry, Coca-Cola and other beverage companies, who were afraid of the passage of bottle bills in states like the state I grew up in, Massachusetts, put a deposit on bottles and cans. Uh, Ultimately, it would force the beverage companies to process that waste to recycle and, and process those bottles and cans, and it would cut into their profits. So what they did instead was to uh, engage in this massive deflection campaign, uh, and they even got some environmental uh, organizations to go along with it, at least initially, until they realized that they had been had, that what this really was, was a deflection campaign aimed at diverting attention away from the need to pass bottle bills, instead making it about individual behavior. We just have to be better people and clean up our bottles and cans. And it was very successful for them. Ultimately, we never saw uh, bottle bills passed in most of the states, and there's no national bottle bill. And what do we have as a result? One of the other tragic global environmental problems of our time, global plastics pollution, the bottom of our oceans, because of this successful campaign on the part of industry to deflect attention away from the need for policies and systemic solutions. And the fossil fuel industry is doing it today. They're using the same playbook. And often they are enabled by mainstream news outlets like the New York Times that publishes dozens and dozens of articles every year about all the things that we can do as individuals to reduce our carbon footprint. The individual carbon footprint was a notion that was actually put forward by BP because they wanted to make it all about individuals rather than systemic solutions, climate policy, price on carbon, incentives for renewable energy, the systemic changes that we know are necessary if we're really going to tackle this problem. And make no mistake, we should all do those things that we can do in our everyday lives to reduce our carbon footprint, things that save us money, they make us healthier, uh, they make us happier, uh, they set a good example for others. Um, there's so many other reasons to do them, but those voluntary Measures alone aren't going to solve this problem. We need policies that will move people collectively in the direction we need to go. And so we have to be aware that the deflection campaign tactics that were used in the past are being used very effectively by the fossil fuel industry today to try to steer the discussion away from the need for climate policy. When uh, Louise and I were working on uh, Leo DiCaprio's new movie, Ice on Fire, we traveled yeah, uh, with the film crew film. Uh, yeah. from, yeah, it, it really was. And, and I believe you and I are both in it. Um, <laughs> and, and we traveled from Costa Rica to Norway to Germany to, I mean, we, we traveled all over the world. And repeatedly what climate scientists that, that I, was, I, I was doing most of the interviews, and Lila Connors, the producer, did probably the other half of them, And repeatedly what we were told was that putting a price on carbon was the single most effective thing that could be done. 
at the level of government action. Does that comport with your understanding of the situation? Yeah, I think it's a very important part of the, the toolkit. And it's not a cure-all. It's not a magic bullet, to use that expression again. It's one tool in the toolbox that we have, putting a price on carbon. And we have to do it in a way that is just. One of the things that has become controversial is the potential for a carbon tax, if not sort of uh, implemented appropriately, to basically put the greatest burden on, on those with the least resources, those who had the least responsibility for creating the problem in the first case. And so we need, uh, if we're going to put a price on carbon, it has to be done in a progressive manner that makes sure that we don't put the greatest burden on on those with the the least resources and who've had the least role. We need to make sure that it's fair to frontline communities and that it's not a regressive, but rather a progressive. Are there any examples out there? Are there countries that have done this successfully? Yeah, Australia had a what they called it an emissions trading scheme. Some people called it a tax. It's sort of a semantic issue. They did trade, have a right? price on carbon. Yeah, it was sort of somewhere between a cap and trade and a carbon tax. In the end, the opponents, the liberals, who are actually the conservatives in the Australian government, they're called liberals, they're mm-hmm. uh, neoconservatives, sort of labeled it as a tax because they knew that that sort of framing was most likely to reduce support from the public. And there was a campaign by the Murdoch press that basically owns Australia, that controls the media environment in Australia, and the conservative government, the liberals, to get rid of that uh, emissions trading scheme. So it had been implemented. It cut emissions by more than 10% in the first six months. It actually ended up providing revenue to the disadvantaged. It actually was it didn't hurt them. It, it, it actually returned revenue in a progressive manner. And so frontline communities um, actually benefited from it, not just from the climate action, but the pricing mechanism. And so it was a great example of something that worked. It reduced carbon emissions. It didn't do so in an unjust way. It actually was progressive. And the conservative government ultimately actually campaigned and the Murdoch press helped them basically campaign on this issue through misinformation and disinformation, convince the public this was somehow a bad thing, and they were able to reverse it. And so Australia had a successful carbon pricing measure. It really worked. It didn't hurt the poor. It was everything that carbon pricing could be, but the fossil fuel industry didn't like it. And ultimately, through the conservative government that came to power and the Murdoch press, they were able to sabotage it. Canada is trying to implement something similar. So it can be done. It's just one tool. It's not going to solve the problem on its own. We also need subsidies and incentives for renewable energy. We need to remove subsidies for fossil fuel companies. We need to think about measures to prevent the construction of additional fossil fuel infrastructure, you know, stopping the building of pipelines, which is something that the the new Biden administration can follow through on. It is committed to prevent the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. And there are, in fact, a number of pipelines that we're going through um, now under the Biden administration that can potentially be reversed. And so, 
you know, we need to do all of those things, supply side as well as demand side, supply side stopping, you know, the, the building of additional infrastructure, fossil fuel pipelines, et cetera, demand side, putting a price on carbon, providing incentives for renewable energy, executive actions, and, you know, again, things like disclosure of risk, requiring the uh, sort of financial industry to disclose climate risk, something that they're starting to do in Australia. We need to do it here in the U.S., and Biden is considering that as one of the measures that they will use. Again, it's, uh, we have to fire on all cylinders here. Yeah, I'm in. Dr. Michael Mann, he's got a new book out. It's called The New Climate War. You need to check it out. Michael Mann with two ends.net. You can tweet him at Michael E. Mann. Dr. Mann, I know you've got to run to a meeting. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Tom. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to coming back again soon. Sean in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Hey, Sean, what's on your mind today? If we rise above two degrees Celsius, in the Earth's climate, what does that mean for the point of no return? So it depends humans, on the system that you're talking about. Sea level rise, you go above two degrees, you are well into a point of no return. He's right. said that before on this okay. show. If we're talking about, well, you're going to see plant species dying off that are not adapted to the new climate. Trees can't migrate north like some animals can. So yeah. there are some species that will get hit but really, really hard by that. Well, so I guess as humans, like, what are we preparing ourselves for? I mean, are we looking at like a, you know, kind of dormant species at the, at that time? Like, are we? Well, I, th- I think this is some conflicting science on this. I mean, we are the most adaptable species, multicellular species on Earth. I mean, you, you find bacteria in places you would never imagine. You know, deep sea thermal yeah. vents and things. But for, you know, complex organisms, humans have lived for thousands of years in the Arctic Circle. They have lived for millions of years on the equator. They've lived through drought. You had the Shoshone, uh, you know, who lived across uh, what is now Nevada. You had groups, uh, the Seminoles down in Florida. I mean, basically any kind of ecosystem you can come up with. Humans have figured out a way to adapt and live in that kind of an ecosystem, whether it's, you know, heating up or cooling down, whether it's, uh, you know, wearing animal skins and building igloos or houses or other things. So I think the human race probably is not at risk of an extinction. My concern is the destruction of civilization, that this is so destructive. Well, that, that climate change becomes so destructive to our economies and thus to our politics, that we basically yeah. start attacking each other over resources and yeah, we end totally up with worldwide agree. war and maybe even worldwide nuclear war. And, you know, there may be a few thousand or a few million or even a few hundred million or even a billion survivors of an so, event like that. I, there's no doubt in my mind humans are going to be here, you know, 100 years down the yeah. road. The question is, you know, is it going to be worth being here? I, I know. In that case in point, what to ask to climate deniers? I mean, what? how do you start that conversation with those who believe that it's just a farce? And in my own opinion, I do believe it's man-assisted. I do believe we go through climate change as, you know, just existence itself, you know. But I do believe that we, we have assistance in it. So what do you say to those who flat-out deny it, that it's a problem? I would tell them that they're listening to people who are lying to them. It's just got to start there. I've found that you can't generally argue with these folks until they figure that out. Uh, So that has to be step one. Sponsoring the interview this week is... 
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Steve in Cortez Beach, Colorado. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today? Hydrogen fuel cells, the mm -hmm. PEM and the growth that we're seeing in these companies that are pushing this particular form of energy energy production forward. Have you uh, right. any insights into that and what the hopes are for I the do. next uh, energy form? Go ahead. There's an upside and a downside, obviously, to hydrogen, and the Hindenburg is the reflection of the downside, although I think that was in like in 1919. It's been a long time, and the Hindenburg was filled with gaseous hydrogen rather than liquid hydrogen, but still, hydrogen is, is very explosive. But on the other hand, gasoline is very explosive. One of the things that I thought was fascinating was that Airbus, the competitor to Boeing, the second largest manufacturer of aircraft, maybe the largest now in the world, is in development. They issued a press release about this and, and you know, had a whole press event about it where they are building an aircraft that uses electric powered, uh, essentially jet engines, but they're using hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cells to generate the electricity that power those engines. That's pretty amazing. The question, the issue, Steve, is something called energy density. You know, if you've got a, a pound of gasoline versus a pound of wood versus a pound of liquid hydrogen versus, you know, a pound of, of battery, of lithium ion battery, how much energy does each one of those things hold? And right now, pretty much at the top of that pile is the pound of hydrogen, and right behind that is the pound of gasoline in terms of their ability to convert you know, mass into energy. And wood is way down there, you know, at the bottom. And, and uh, our current storage battery technology is moving ahead by leaps and bounds, but it's nothing like hydrogen or gasoline. So if we're going to use liquid fuels, which are transportable and all that kind of thing, all the hydrogen has to be kept at, I think it's 200 and something degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Maybe it's a little less than that, but it, it is problematic because it has to be so cold in order to stay in its liquid phase. It is a, a real viable high energy, high energy density fuel. There are several car manufacturers now that are working on, actually there's already several, but I'm pretty sure Toyota made one that's in very, very limited sale here in the United States, but pretty much just in California. But they are selling in, in uh, parts of Japan. Having the local infrastructure so you can refuel is the big challenge. But I think hydrogen has a tremendous amount of potential and it's super clean because when you burn hydrogen, the only thing that comes out of the tailpipe is water vapor. Max in Clackamas, Oregon. Hey, Max, what's up? Dr. Mann's pretty uh, big deal in uh, climate science circles. I'm an environmental science major myself. Uh, his research is 
is well known in those groups. So you had a pretty legitimate guest today. Um, I wanted to ask him, and, and maybe I can <clears throat> sort of elaborate that a lot of the folks who deny human assisted, human driven, indeed climate change, are probably some of the same overlapping groups of people that deny things like COVID science, for instance. A lot of these people and evolution from personal and well, I was going to say part of the reason is that in order to have good climate science, you have to understand that the Earth is millions of years old, and that a lot of this coal, a lot of these fossil fuels that we're digging out of the ground are just dead plants that took up the carbon from the atmosphere. And for 60 million years, a period called the Carboniferous Era happened about 300 to 360 million years ago, Earth was a giant forest and those forests died and they were buried, but they kept all that carbon in their dead bodies and got buried. In other words, they stored all that carbon underground. And what humans came along and did is in the course of about 300 years, we undid about 60 million years worth of carbon storage and putting all that carbon dioxide, all that carbon back into the atmosphere and into the oceans, which are, by the way, acidifying the oceans and changing climates uh, that way as well. But one thing that I wanted to talk to Dr. Mann about is that his hockey stick graph, largely in most publications and textbooks and science classrooms, ends in the year 2100. My nephew was born a few months ago, and he'll be 80 in the year 2100. I'll probably Mm -hmm. be pushing up daisies by then. But the problem is, is that his grandchildren held my nephew, and I had this thought. I said, you know, your grandchildren are going to be alive in a world that might be more like Venus than Earth. And I think we need to talk about survivability instead of about sustainability of a system that's already been broken. I am with you, Max. I'm not entirely despairing, but I'm very alarmed. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.